This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Universal Basic Income is a program that has run in Alaska since the early 1980s. The Alaska Permanent Fund, as it is known, provides every man, woman, and child in the state a dividend based on oil revenues, which is obviously a big part of that state. But can a program like that work across all of the U.S.? And would providing such a program mean any change to working patterns in the United States? In a recent study by Ioana Marinescu, Assistant Professor of Economics here at the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice, along with Damon Jones of the University of Chicago, really no change in working patterns was found because of universal basic income in the state of Alaska. The amounts of money, by the way, that people had been receiving were at times as high as nearly $2,100 annually or as low as $800. And as we mentioned, uh, a recent B-School seminar for public policy discussed the topic here at Penn, and Ioana joins us in studio to discuss her work on this project. Nice seeing you again. Thank you for coming in. Hey, I'm happy to be here, Dan. Thank you. So uh, the idea, obviously, of universal income is drawing a lot of attention right now. What I think a lot of people don't realize is that Alaska has had this in place now for the last couple of decades. The impact on the working public in Alaska, as we mentioned, almost negligible. Tell us more. Right. So first, let me clarify here for our listeners that in Alaska, it's not called the universal basic income. But as you were mentioning, they are getting this cash every year, no strings attached. So it very much functions as a universal basic income, but it's called the Alaska Permanent Fund Dividend. And uh, also to be clear, this is not directly the oil money. They actually put the oil money in a fund, like a wealth fund. And what they're getting is the dividend on Right. their investment. Right. So it's actually kind of a smart thing to do because that means when they don't get any oil revenue, this thing is still going because okay. they have all the capital uh, you know, that they've invested giving out all those uh, dividends. So, uh, so yeah, we've looked at this with my co-author, Damon Jones. And you know, the worry that people have is, hey, if you give people just free cash, why would they be working? You know, they can just stay home and relax. That's, I guess, the idea. And, um, you know, we looked at it and we compared Alaska with other similar states. And we found that people in Alaska are exactly as likely to work once this thing was put in place as right. people in, you know, the most similar states like Wyoming, you know, other um, similar U.S. states. And so, therefore, we don't find really any effect on the proportion of Alaskans uh, who are working. But we we look at other things too and for example how much people are working and we find some small effects on, you know, the amount of work that people do. For example, more people seem to be working part-time. Right. Um so you know, there is some effect on the amount of uh hours that people seem to be working, but no effect on you know, the the amount of uh, people who are working. So the overall employment rate is unaffected. Now, part of this, obviously, is the amount of money that that the people have been receiving off of this dividend. When you're talking about anywhere from $800 to $2,100 and annually, not even monthly, but annually, that's not exactly the, the amount of money that people could even consider to sit back and not work. So it's it's almost like it's it's... 
it's a it, it's an add-on to it. It's to a degree, it's a Christmas bonus that they get. Right. So so it's it's not a lot of money, but just to put that into perspective, first of all, in the high range, if you're a family, let's say of two parents, three kids, you would get about ten thousand dollars. Right. Because so, it's per person. Because it's per person. Right. And no matter the age, even if you're a baby, you know you get it. So, uh, so it can add up to, you know, like a, a, a non-negligible sum. But the, in another way of putting this into perspective is to think about other policies that give people cash and how much are they getting with these other policies. So yeah. earned income tax credit, uh, you know, is a very popular policy uh, for low-income Americans who are working. And the maximum amount that they could get from this tax credit is around, you know, $4,000 tops yeah. per household. So that is really not more. It's rather less than the the permanent fund dividend. And that program did, you know, move people into work. Well, because it had work requirements. But in order to get that money, you know, people work. So kind of sums of money in that ballpark can move people, you know, in other contexts to work or not work. So I think it wasn't a foregone conclusion that there would be no effect. Uh, uh, So it could have had an effect. We just don't find any in this particular case. How much of an impact do you think the the part of this in Alaska was the fact that it was a dividend? Right. And, And how much of an impact do you think that had overall in the process? Because, as you said, that allows it to continue to go you know, no matter what the revenue, uh, the level of return is on the amount of oil or the revenue that these companies are making when they're drilling up in Alaska. Right. So that means that what's important with this is that this means that really the fund has a permanence. Like Alaskans can reasonably expect that this is going to go on and on and on. You right. know, they don't need to raise any additional taxes for it. It's already there. They have this fund that's giving them dividends. And so that's very important because other programs like this that were giving cash to people uh, and trying to look at their behavior uh, were time limited. They were experiments. So they said, oh, let's do this for three years, five years. But I'd say that doesn't necessarily, you know, get us at what we want because people might react differently if they know that they can count on this for the rest of their lives versus just three to five years. And so I think in that sense that the Alaskan example is the best laboratory in the U.S. that we have for a policy like, you know, a universal basic income. But that was that was looking specifically at the relationship between the state and the people of the state and the oil industry. And and that's a significant component, I think, here, because it it makes you wonder, could you replicate something like that with an industry in another state? Now, obviously, part of it could be oil in in the lower 48 contiguous states, but probably you would in some states where you don't have oil, you'd have to try and and find that component, correct? Right. Indeed. So one of the most interesting policy things you have to think about is... How would you finance this kind of universal basic income? If, even if we think the effects are pretty positive, I didn't even go mention, we can talk about it later, that it has positive effects we've seen from other research on health and education among the most disadvantaged. Right. So there's reasons to want to do this, the good reasons, but still, how are you going to pay for it? Right. And that's where you're saying Alaska is very special. And some some oil states might envision doing that. But I think more broadly, one very promising avenue is to get money from um, essentially pricing pollution and carbon. 
So because that everyone has. And so basically the idea is we want to reduce carbon pollution uh, in order to deal with the negative effects on the climate. I mean, we've seen hurricanes recently, what that has done. And we think, you know, more hurricanes are linked with climate change. So there's reasons to uh, curb pollution, carbon pollution. And the idea is we're going to tax that. We're going to raise or put a fee on it, basically, polluter pay. And then... With that revenue, we can give it back to everyone. No strings attached. Because after all, you can say just like the oil is our oil, the air we breathe, the environment we live in is ours. And so the money from that comes from protecting that, if you want, there could be some argument made that it should come back to everyone, every citizen, uh, you know, who uh, is contributing to this effort to protect the environment, which Mm. is, you know, uh, capital that we own in common. Were you able to determine what the impact was in Alaska of having this financial component on the people, but not necessarily just on the people, but on the economy of the state in general? Exactly. So that's part of why we think that, uh, you know, the the uh, UBI, the, the kind of cash that Alaskans are getting isn't really cutting employment. We think that part of what's going on here is that it stimulates uh, employment in some businesses and more specifically local businesses. So, right. for example, uh, every year, right, Alaskans get this cash inflow in October nowadays. And so you can see if you look at the data that there's much greater spending in October, November, December sure. than the rest yeah. of the year. Yeah. And so a lot of this spending really goes to local businesses like restaurants, local retail. All these local businesses are, are benefiting from the spending and presumably want to hire workers in order to respond to this greater demand from consumers. And so while on the one hand, maybe some people would want to work less or not work, on the other hand, all these local businesses are pumped up to hire more people, and we think the two effects essentially cancel each other out. And that's why you you see the potential growth in part-time employment, because... If if the spending is in the holiday months, right. th- that's basically continuing the trend we see pretty much across the country of companies needing to hire more workers at the holidays uh, to, to deal with a restaurant or a store or whatever Exactly. Might be. That could exactly be part of the explanation for the part-time thing is what kind of employment is stimulating by this. Some of it is probably, you know, yeah. this more part-time seasonal. But, you know, it could also be more broadly because the, if the capacity of those businesses expands, some of the people they have to have year-round. So it's probably a combination. How, how how different is the level of success that Alaska has had in comparison with other states or other parts of the world in terms of, of the types of programs they have wanted to put into place that are similar to what we call a UBI? Right. Uni- but universal basic income. Right. So, so you know, right now there's a lot of interest in that kind of program and there's a bunch of experiments that are being run in a number of different uh, places. Uh, and, you know, we are hopefully going to learn more about what peop- how people react uh, in many different dimensions, not just working, but uh, a bunch of even different dimensions that you might care about, such as... Uh, political participation, for example. And I think, you know, right now this is an important uh, topic. Uh, Is it the case that people having that uh, economic security 
could potentially stimulate, say, political engagement. So that's some of the things that we will learn with these different experiments. What Alaska is unique for is that, again, this is a policy where literally every Alaskan gets it and it's been around for so long. So in terms of its scale and duration, it's very unique uh, compared to many of the experiments that are, are being done. I will, I will mention one more interesting experiment in the U.S. I mean, it's not really an experiment. It's something that is going on. Many Indian reservations have businesses, casinos in particular, sure, yeah. that they're drawing revenue from. And for many of these reservations, the model is that the profit that the casino is making is going back to the tribe member on a per capita basis, no string attached. So very much right. like a basic income. And so you could see that see there's some sort of similarity with the Alaskan model sure. uh, because it's coming from their businesses of the tribe. And so people have looked at the effect at that on various of that on various outcomes for the tribes that do this and comparing uh, you know, members of the tribe who live there versus non-tribe members, other people who live in the same area. Yeah. And what you see is there's no effect on working again. So right. it's very consistent, but positive effects on uh, education and redu reduction in crime. So And, and health care, obviously, is, is another part of this as well. And, and I've seen various stories over the years that talk about some of the issues with tribes and the use of drugs and then obviously you hope that you're having a positive impact on trying to lower the use of drugs, which obviously has various other impacts on people working part-time, full-time, whatever exactly. it might be. So the amazing thing about this study of the Indian reservation is that, you know, really you could worry, and that's one of the things that you hear a lot, like if we give all this money to uh, people, poor people, they're going to use it on drugs and alcohol. And, you know, that's that's a valid concern in principle. But what they found looking at these Indian reservations is that actually addiction decreased yeah. after they received the money. It made a big difference, especially among youth and also criminality decreased. Potentially, you know, this might be linked because, you know, people can get into trouble when they do drugs. Yeah. And so uh, amazingly, having this kind of policy actually helps, it seems like, address some of the addiction problems that they have, uh, you know, in those areas. And therefore, we can speculate that having this kind of policy might address other addiction problems we're facing right now, like the opi opioid uh, epidemic. How, how, how positive are you that we could move at some point in the future the idea of doing a tax on carbon that would have a benefit back to the American public. You know, I think there is hope. And the reason why I think there is hope is that uh, there is, for example, a, a thing called the Climate Leadership Council. <laughs> and this is a national organization that uh, is a bipartisan organization that brings together conservatives and liberals and has major, you know, I'm an economist, so figures like Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen, the former uh, chair, uh, chairwoman and chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, in support of doing just such a carbon tax and dividend at the national level. So having this carbon fee nationally, returning it to every American, no strings attached, mm -hmm. in cash. So, you know, I think right now the federal level, you know, politics is quite very much in a in a in a bind and it's probably not going to happen like right now yeah. but the fact that there are so many you know powerful people who are interested in this makes me hopeful let's say for the medium run that something like that can happen yeah. plus let's not forget the states 
every state has the opportunity to do their own policy. Sure. And so that is another avenue where it could happen much faster. For example, Washington state, you know, in on November right now, they're having on the ballot a carbon tax, which is would be, if it passed, the first U.S. state to literally have a carbon tax. Right. Would there, would there be issues, though, because of the fact that there would probably be some sort of interstate component to the company, to the people that work there, uh, obviously, you know, a variety of elements of transportation. So while the state of Washington may bring something forward and want to have it, eventually I would think there would have to be some sort of partnership form with maybe Oregon or Utah, states that are right around the state of Washington. Exactly. So one of the issues with implementing this is that potentially this might have an effect on how attractive the state is to businesses. And right. so, so, you know, that's an issue that's worth thinking about. Uh, but uh, these kinds of tax differences are very common. For example, sales taxes are very different from sure. state to state. Yeah. So there are many respects in which states are different. A state is a package. It's not necessarily that a change in one single you know, tax is going to have such a big impact. Plus, let's not forget that if the money is returned to the public, the same kind of effects that we talked about Alaska in terms of stimulating consumption right. uh, for some businesses might very well occur. It's just that... The likely effect, and that's kind of the goal with a carbon tax, is to kind of shift economic activity somewhat away from carbon intensive activities sure. towards yeah. other less carbon intensive things. So it's, right. it's, you know, what's important to keep in mind for us all is that this tax, especially if it's returned in cash to everyone, there is no net loss. What it does is reallocate the activity again away from sectors, and that's the whole goal, right. uh, that are carbon int intensive towards sectors that are less. Or, and that's similar, uh, incentivize all these carbon in intensive sectors to use less carbon so yeah. that they pay less. That's the whole point, is yeah. to tell them, look, guys, you're paying all these taxes because you have so much carbon. Can you come up with new technologies that will do what you do? With a much lower, you know, uh, carbon uh, content. Yeah. So that's really something that's over, often overlooked by the public and that we <laughs> economists love so much is the incentive effect. People tend to maybe see it more as a punishment, like, you know, hey, we bring this tax on you because you're a polluter. Yeah. But that's not really the goal from an economics perspective. The goal is to incentivize people and companies to, uh, you know, basically recreate their technologies and their consumption modes to move away from the carbon intensive types of activities and consumption and towards less carbon intensive uh, activities and consumption. Yeah, because all of those companies are really watching the bottom line. And if their bottom line is impacted, A, by a tax, and they can get rid of the tax by using lower carbon, then, it, th then their bottom line is going to look better to investors. That's exactly the point. Yeah. We're joined by Ioana Marinescu, who is an assistant professor of economics here at the University of Pennsylvania. We're talking about the work that uh, she has done looking at the state of Alaska and the Alaska Permanent Fund Dividend, which is a version of a universal basic income. It provides money to every man, woman, and child in the state of Alaska and has done so uh, for the last uh, three decades, going on four decades now. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-786. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So going back to the, the comparisons for a second, obviously we see what 
what's going on in in, in Alaska. How does that compare to? I, I saw that you know Ontario has done a version of this. Finland has done a version of this. How do those compare with what Alaska is doing? And what are kind of the parameters that they are using to try and be successful, whether it be oil or another industry or or such? Right. So so uh, the experiments in Finland and in uh, Canada are a bit different in that they are not actually a policy. It's an it's kind of an experiment, meaning that it's a small sample of people that we want to give this money to to see how they would react. Right. So therefore, they haven't necessarily budgeted a source, you know, okay. to pay for the whole policy. But the point, what's different is that in Finland, for example, they were really interested in unemployed people. Right. So then they only gave the money to unemployed people. You know, it was an experiment. So now, and we don't have the results yet, but the goal was to look at how this would affect the behavior and lives of the unemployed, so, which is a very specific, you know, section of the population. Right. And then in uh, Ontario, they were looking specifically at low-income people. So they selected, you know, low-income people and said, okay, if we gave you this, let's see, you know, how behavior is going to be uh, affected, which is also, I mean, both of these are interesting groups to look at. But what's interesting with a thing like Alaska is that it was literally for everyone. And coming back to our earlier discussion, that makes a a whole lot of a difference potentially on the business side, how it affects in the business's bottom lines in terms of people going around and, and spending money. Because right. obviously, if you just give it to a thousand people, yeah, the total amounts involved are not so high. So it's right. not really going to make a big difference to the, the kind of business side of the equation. And so we can learn a lot through these experiments about how individuals react to getting this cash in different contexts, whether they're unemployed or low income in different countries. Right. Etc. But we're not going to learn about how this affects the economy more broadly because these are small samples. Well, but is there is there already kind of an idea of how this has been affecting the GDP in in the state of Alaska over the last couple of decades? Right. So we haven't looked at that directly. So uh, okay. so you know it's it's unclear how this has played out. But certainly you know given the employment didn't change, it probably didn't have you know a huge uh, effect one way or the other. Would be my speculation. But right. frankly, we haven't looked at that. We're joined by Ioana Marinescu. Your comments welcome at eight four four Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio one thirty two or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney L O N E Y twenty one. All right. So from this. Re- research that you've done what what's the what is the next step in the process right so you know i think uh as i i me- uh, we mentioned briefly a, a few weeks ago i talked to this to uh, about this to dc staffers right. which was very interesting because there were many of them and the room was packed and we got people from both sides of the aisle which i thought was very very interesting so clearly there's a lot of interest in this kind of policy i think it's uh there are you know two interesting things to think about first of all how does this policy stack up compared to other perhaps comparable policies Mm -hmm. Uh, for example what about having a child allowance Kind of like a basic income, but only for kids. Yeah. Uh, so that would cost less. So that's that's an upside. And we've seen that a lot of the positive effects were for youth and for the more, most disadvantaged kids. So that could be good. Also, we know in the U.S. a lot of the poverty is among families with kids. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it seems like potentially something that we can get behind. Conservatives also like this because they want to support families. So it can be, you know, something that has bipartisan support. So, you know, just thinking about sort of the trade-offs. 
On the other hand, with something like a child allowance, you wouldn't help adults who fall on a rough patch. You know, right. part of the reason to have a basic income is to have a form of, uh, you know, income security that no net. matter yeah. what, yeah. in last resort, you get a little something. Right. Right. And so if you just give it to kids, that part of the equation is lost, right? So, you know, nothing is for free, but it's very interesting to think about, well, okay, what else could you do? Or you could expand the earned income tax credit, which I think is also a great idea. Right. So right now it's for family with kids. And so single people, as you know, don't get almost anything. Right. Um, or, you know, people without kids. Right. So that would be also another way to give more money, you know, towards low income workers that can, you know, also be promising. But there again... You know, if you don't happen to work, if you can't find a job, then, you know, you're not getting that. So, you know, there's all sorts of trade-offs that are important to, to understand. Great seeing you again. Thank you for coming over. Thanks. Thank you. Ioana Marinescu uh, from the uh, School of Social Policy and Practice here at the University of Pennsylvania. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 